in a church where they don't have any instruments but a pitch pipe or a tuning fork. Like, they had to learn all the melodies the hard way. You had to learn to blend your voice as well. Like, I think, so this is a, a slight tangent, but because we have so much music in our culture today which is like a solo artist with a band Mm -hmm. i don't think people know how to sing together yeah hello and welcome back to season three of the hymn parcel podcast where we talk all things church music i'm cara Devereaux, and i'm one funga and today we will be discussing a hymnal that's been used on this island for over 200 years we will take a look at the man behind its publishing reverend william gadsby and we'll have a brief chat about the strength of acapella singing but first, we want to make a brief appeal to those of you who are watching or listening to this podcast, especially if you're a regular follower. If you like us, and I mean really like us, there are a few ways you can support us. Of course, like and share this episode with your friends. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're subscribed to us. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter over at impartial.com. Or the best way of all is to consider supporting us financially on ko-fi.com forward slash impartial. This helps us pay the bills and will open up some more avenues for us to bring you better and better content. That's ko-fi.com forward slash impartial. Become a member today and help keep the podcast going. Today's episode was a request of one of our longtime listeners down in England. Uh, We often tell folks that we are not experts, and let's be honest, that's not difficult to believe. (laughs) Uh, But this listener asked us if we had ever heard of Gadsby's hymnal. Um, Have you ever heard of it, Cara? Yes. You have? I don't know anything about it, but yes, I've heard of it. You've heard of it. Okay. Well, I hadn't heard of it at all before this this listener had um asked us about it and um i but i think amongst our tradition i'm i'm in the minority uh in this country at least but before before we dig into the hymnal let's talk about its curator and publisher reverend william gadsby now you are not hearing me say gatsby like the novel the great gatsby uh but g-a-d-s-b-y um Gadsby was a Baptist preacher in the 18th, 19th century. Uh, he was born in 1773 in, you can have to help me here, Warwickshire? Yeah, Warwickshire. Okay, Warwickshire. I always mess like, up these. Um, like the actor Warwick Davis. I know who that is. You'd know him if you saw him. <laughs> well, Gadsby was um, one, he was the ninth of 14 children. Wow. Yes, and he grew up in very poor conditions. Um, but praise the Lord, he was converted to the faith at the age of 17. Um, he was a very devoted member of his church, and he was later baptized at the age of 20 at Cow Lane Baptist Church in Coventry. Am I saying that properly? Yeah, Coventry. Okay, I always check, I always check my English pronunciation. <laughs> um, he was a reluctant preacher at the age of 25, having never received a proper education. In his day, he was basically illiterate, uh, though by today's standard, he'd probably graduate with a first degree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. But it is amazing because, no, he wasn't very well educated. But as we'll see, he obviously had a lot to write and say. Um, He eventually became ordained two years later at the age of 27. Uh, He really led 
a fascinating life by by God's grace. Um, he was involved in nearly 40 church plants throughout his lifetime, wow. which is insane by any standard. I didn't realize he was like a pastor as well. I just assumed because the only context I've ever heard of him was in reference to he wrote a hymnal. Yeah. I didn't realize he was like um, more than just a musician. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because we're, we're talking about him and like you said, in, in reference to this hymnal, but he was most known as a fierce, fierce preacher. Oh. Um, he, pre- he preached roughly 12,000 sermons over his lifetime. Wow. Um, and his ministry was marked by his strict and particular Baptist doctrine, um, but also his intense love for the poor and those who were downcast in society, which, which makes sense because... He obviously came from a very poor background yeah. as well. So he probably felt that calling a little bit stronger than the average manager, minister of his age. Yeah. Um, he, he served in many churches, but uh, the last 39 years of his life, he served in the same church in Manchester. Uh, I heard a uh, reverend talking about him um, and he said that then it was confusing because the name kept changing, but it's basically because the street that the church was on kept changing its name. <laughs> so it kept changing its name, but it was the same church, same location for the last 39 years That's until he so died. so bizarre. Yeah. So William died in 1844 and his last words were victory, victory, victory forever and free grace, free grace, free grace. It's really interesting, too, because I watched a few lectures on him. I looked up um, his bio in a few places, and this is mentioned in almost every place. Like, this was like his famous last words, victory, victory, victory forever, and free grace, free grace, free grace. (laughs) What do you think about that? Those are good last words. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it just shows his his joy and his confidence in what Christ had done all the way to the end. Do you ever think about like, if you knew that you were dying, what your last words would be? I don't know. I, you know, because famous last words is a thing. Yeah. You I feel like we, I should have put more thought into it, but I haven't. I haven't. Uh, No, I was just thinking like, do people think about this or does it just come out at the time? Like there's, there's one of the, uh, I can't remember who it was. One of the writers, with a really dry sense of humor was like his last words were either that wallpaper goes or I do. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, that's funny, but can you imagine that being the last thing you say on earth? (laughs) Well, I think of last words in reference to this poem that John Piper wrote a few years ago, maybe like 12 years ago. Now it was a long time ago. And he had a bunch of his friends like in the evangelical world, like record bits of it. And they like did a little video. It was called the Calvinist. Yes. And the thing that really strikes me about it is the last, the last bit of the poem is um, narrated by R.C. Sproul, and the f- last line of the poem is "Final Whisper, Gain," and he says it like yes, "Gain." I remember getting shivers watching yes, that. Yes, it's so great. And then obviously, when R.C. Sproul passed away a few years ago, I just thought about Im- yeah. immediately. I thought "Final Whisper, Gain," and I I, I broke down in tears because it was a beautiful reality. Yeah. Obviously from scripture. So why do we care about this guy and or his hymnal? Hymnal. Well, as I said, William Gadsby was of the strict and particular Baptist tradition, which does sit under our umbrella of the Reformed Baptist tradition. So as you know, me and Cara are Reformed Baptists. Um, and so these are like 
their cousins. Um, <laughs> so uh, this hymnal that we'll look at today is the longest continuously used hymnal amongst strict Baptists. Uh, so who are the strict Baptists? Well, I'm going to just read this definition from their site. <laughs> the strict Baptists, or to use the name by which they have often been known, the strict and particular Baptists, are a group of evangelical churches found mostly in England, rooted in the older particular Baptist tradition. They emerged as a distinct body early in the 19th century because of their opposition to the idea that it is the duty of every person to repent and believe the gospel. Nowadays, many are known as Grace Baptists because of their adherence to the doctrines of grace, which is a little bit confusing because our church is Grace Baptist Church, but we're not strict or particular Baptists, but we would probably have a lot of overlap in our beliefs because we're Reformed Baptists. Yeah. So the way my husband put it, he said, not every Reformed Baptist is a strict Baptist, but every strict Baptist is a Reformed Baptist. So does, <laughs> does a particular part come from particular... Ah, is it atonement or redemption? I want to say yes, but honestly, um, that's above my pay grade. Okay. I'll go Google it later. We'll Google it. Um, or I'm sure, ask our listener. Yeah, if you guys know. I think it's just interesting to know what your relationship is to other traditions. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I, you'll read through a history book and somebody will say Anabaptists or whatever. And I'm like, who are they? Right? And it's just, like, interesting to know. Yeah okay, like, do we believe the same things? Like, sort of, there's some overlap, I don't know, or whatever. So, did you, I mean, I guess you kind of understand it roughly how I do as well, like particular Baptists, strict and particular. Do you have any other thoughts on who those I people are? I don't really no? know much about it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure uh, there are people out there that do know a lot, yeah. and it is, <laughs> it is interesting because, like, nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. And so... It's, it's helpful knowing church history and knowing yeah. about like where stuff came from and where they diverged and why they diverged mm -hmm. um, to kind of know a bit more about yeah. how we came to be where we are now. So it would be interesting to learn a bit more about them. Yeah. I was aware that they existed. I yeah. didn't really know. I was going to say I didn't know the particulars, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the specifics. I yeah. don't know the specifics yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, um, that's all I know. That's all I know uh, at this point in time. So it was Gatsby's wise belief that it was important that our main hymn book stick to the main doctrines of our faith. Sensible. Sensible. So prior to him publishing his hymnal, originally called A Selection of Hymns for Public Worship, but now kind of shorthanded to Gadsby's hymns or Gadsby's hymnal. Yeah. Um, his church and many other strict Baptist churches used a combination of a few hymnals. They used Joseph Hart's hymns and um, Samuel Medley's hymns. Um, so I'm not familiar with those either. Those They're both hymn writers. So I'm imagining they put a collection of hymns together uh -huh. as well. Joseph Hart and Samuel Medley. I was going to say, I think I've seen Samuel Medley's name on the bottom of hymns in mm -hmm. Christian hymns. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We definitely sing their hymns okay. uh, today. Um, so Gatsby desire, Gatsby's desire was to have a source for the church that championed the Calvinistic doctrines that he held dear. I think this kind of answers a question in my mind that we're, we've not explicitly, we've not explicitly talked about it on the show. And 
it basically is why a lot of modern churches don't use hymnals as much anymore. And I think it's because we want a wider selection of hymns, old and new, um, that we can say mirror the doctrines we believe. Um, And I think the downside of this in our modern churches is that we don't have that protection of like a curated list of hymns that we more or less, that more or less keep us from falling into error in terms of our doctrines. I suppose it depends a bit on who curates your hymns. Yes, obviously. If it's <laughs> by popular consensus of your congregation, uh, no shade on your congregation, but um, not everybody's gonna mm-hmm. have quite the theology you might want them to have, mm-hmm. so other stuff will creep in maybe a bit. Um, but yeah, I guess it just depends, doesn't it? Like, yeah. If it's some random guy on the sound desk who's like, we're gonna sing this this week, yeah, then... It, yeah. it speaks a lot to the reality that we do need like a uh, biblical leadership, even in things like what we sing on a Sunday, because yeah. those doctrines, we memorize them, you know? So, I mean, Gatsby's main beef with the hymnals his churches were singing before is that they utilized many hymns written by the Wesleys and they contained in his opinion in his opinion, traces of Arminianism, Arminianism. I've heard that a lot with the Wesleys. Yeah. Um, discernment <laughs> is yes. key. And, and we love the, obviously we sing a lot of their hymns today. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of what we are saying. And I think Kevin Twitt said this on our show as well, essentially that what we sing is actually what we commit commit to our memory in terms of theology. So there is a question and there is an important question of like, well, who's deciding what hymns or what modern Christian songs you're singing at your church? Who's making those decisions? And um, how are they discerning how sound they are? Because that is what we commit to our memory. Yeah. And you don't want like the pastor or the elder preaching and preaching really good doctrine and then what you're singing undermining yeah what you're being taught yeah and i think maybe we don't really think about that as much now as maybe we should i'm sure there are churches out there who are totally on fire on this Mm -hmm. but i just think some churches kind of don't Mm -hmm. they just think oh yeah we need three songs pick three songs um and they may not kind of take into consideration But I imagine, too, on that vein, just as a quick aside, you know, if you have a hymnal that you trust, like if a committee put it together or a group of pastors or whatever, or a pastor, your pastor, for example, maybe you have your own hymnal that's just a bunch of songs that your pastor has put together over the years. um, That means that you could on a Sunday be like, okay, just flip to the section on, you know, the atonement and then play two two songs there we have that we have hymn books that we trust and we're like well okay the sermon's on x so there's a section on that let's just go with that and see if there's a a hymn that works with that yeah it's important but it it still requires discernment so discernment is required no matter what but i do think it's an important thing and that spurred the desire for a lot of people to create the hymnals that they have over the last several centuries as they wanted to have something that they trusted they could go to that section and say okay so despite his kind of prejudice against the wesleys he actually did include 19 of charles wesley's hymns in the original publishing of this hymnal in 1814 
though he only properly referenced one song. <laughs> uh, he, he referenced Hark the Herald Angel Sing, but he referenced it as J.C. Wesley. <laughs> And it's thought to be because he didn't know which of the Wesleys has written it. So he just put like one of them, like That's it was funny. John or, or Charles. I, don't know. I think it's funny as well. He's like, oh, I don't like the Wesleys, but it's Christmas. Yeah. Well, from what I understand. So the breakdown, the breakdown is he had like 119 uh, hymns from Isaac Watts, 92 from Joseph Hart, you know, blah, 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 blah. He had a number. So he had 19 from Charles Wesley, uh, two from Augustus Toplady, 11 from William Cooper, which feels low to me, but I'm biased. And then 157 of his own. Did he have many John Newton ones? Because John Newton wrote a lot. He had 38 from John Newton. But from what I understand, the original publishing, he didn't have any of the names like in the right places. Like it was kind (laughs) of like, you know, these hymnals were written by hand. So I don't know how like, I don't know enough about printing press to know how they got transferred from his handwriting yeah. to being put into booklets. But he just was kind of like, mm, I think this one's by John Newton. And it was like a Cooper him or like whatever. <laughs> I think those numbers are like, like looking back retrospectively, that's how many were actually in there. Yeah. But for a lot of the Charles Wesley hymns, it was like, who? Uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody did this one. I don't know. Um, So that actually leads us to the next point, which is that Gatsby's hymnal was text-only hymnal. Um, It's unknown which tunes he actually used for each of the songs, but uh, common tune books that were used at the time were the Union tune book and the Bristol tune book. Um, So Gatsby's hymns would have been sung with a presenter, first giving the lines and the rhythm of the hymn and then the congregation singing the hymn a cappella and in harmony yeah and in harmony which i think is great i actually heard some recordings of like um i think the congregation at um gatsby's old church i don't think it was when he was there but it was a recording of them and it was really lovely um because gatsby was against the use of any instruments during worship service and interesting yeah When his successor um, at the church in Manchester introduced a pipe organ, it was heavily criticized. And I heard a man from the Strict Baptist Historical Society say that we have lost something in our congregational singing since the introduction of instruments. And this this is a tough one for me because being in Scotland, I have attended services with, mm-hmm. with and without instruments. Um, and our church has either a guitar or a piano most days, uh, though sometimes we do sing a cappella. And I know by conviction, there isn't a right way to do this. Well, I feel like it's not the introduction of instruments. I feel like it's the reintroduction of instruments. Yeah. If you read the Psalms. But I don't know. What do you, what do you think about this criticism? Like, do you think we've lost something with the introduction of, of instruments? Well, it depends what something we're talking about having lost. I think something in regards to how how the congregation, like what responsibility the congregation has in the singing, the corporate singing of hymns. I think if you don't have instruments, then your congregation has to sing mm-hmm. because they're the only instrument. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes, even if it's just one instrument, like a piano or something or an organ, then the temptation can be to mumble. Like mm. I've been in a lot of churches where people just, <laughs> they don't sing out. Um, 
and I think you should sing out mm-hmm. because it's make a joyful noise to the Lord. Yeah. Um, not make a joyful tune to the Lord. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I've heard too, like we've even had people on the show say this, like, oh, that song, oh, it's not really great for congregational singing or, oh, I find people struggle with that tune or people blah, blah, blah. But you think like in a in a church where they don't have any instruments but a pitch pipe or a tuning fork, yeah. like they had to learn all the well, melodies you had to the also, hard way. You had to learn to blend your voice as well. Yeah. Like I think, so this is a, a slight tangent, but because we have so much music in our culture today, which is like a solo artist with a band, mm-hmm. I don't think people know how to sing together. Yes. And so I think maybe having instruments just kind of feeds into that mentality a little mm-hmm. bit where it's like, either I'm singing and I'm not listening to everyone else because like it's me and the piano and God yeah. <laughs> or it's kind of like well I'm, I'm not really a vocalist so yeah. I'll just like sing quietly because you know I'm not the star here um yeah. which is true but I think maybe acapella teaches you to listen to the people around you and mm-hmm. to to find your to place sing with them yeah and not just have lots of individuals singing, but to sing as a group, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those reasons why, and I'm totally dipping my toe into hot water here, but, you know, our church doesn't use amplification for, like, my voice or whoever's leading the music bit of the service. Um, and it's because, well, it's not very many of us, so that would be silly. But also... Um, I think it actually does force the congregation, force is a strong word, but Encourage. you know, it encourages the congregation to sing mm. more f- fully um, in, and the guitar, the piano or whatever instrument we're using is simply just an accompaniment. It's just to help us yeah. keep the key and to help us know the pace and the rhythm and yeah. stuff like that. And I think even with presenters, it's not like they like sing the tune and then put their hands in their pocket. I think there is some kind of like yeah. conducting there to kind of help people know like, you yeah. know, verse it's two is so coming. It's just so you don't in. have long awkward pauses yeah. between verses or you yeah. don't accidentally shift key or... Yeah pull the pace right back or yeah. sing too fast or whatever the case is. It might, I, I think it's worth thinking about in your congregations. If you're listening and you're like, well, acapella would be super awkward because I don't sing well or whatever. Well, I have been in multiple churches in this country here in Scotland where there have been people, you know, age 60 plus a room full of people and they are either from a tradition that, with psalm only or no instruments, um, hymn singing, um, or they have just been in church long enough where they know all the tunes. And when they sing a cappella or very, with very minimal, it's like they almost sing better a cappella. They do. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful sound. And then, I mean, to hear this old recording, like I was I was referring to. Um, and hearing them harmonize. I love when people harmonize. And I mean, I'm not talking about, because you know, you know what I'm talking about. You'll be at church and it'll be like some tune on and somebody will be like, I'm going to sing the harmony like so loud because yeah. you're going to know how cool I am. I know the harmony. But I mean, like you were saying, like that blended voice. Yeah. Uh, it's something that 
you do learn to do and acquire because you have to, to stick out and acquire is not what you should be doing. And it's similar as a congregation learning how to uh, blend your voices. And that's not to say like, okay, you're tone deaf. So like, just be quiet. I think, I think a bit of tone deafness could sit on top of a well harmonized congregation. Um, But I do think, I do think it's made me think through what, do we as members of the congregation think we need to bring to our sung worship during corporate worship time on a Sunday or on a Tuesday or whenever you guys meet and you sing? And I think the answer for most of us is nothing. We're not supposed to bring anything. We're just supposed to turn up and whoever's leading is supposed to lead us. And then that's it. Then we go home. But like we have, like we're singing praises to our God and we might not have an instrument to play, but maybe it's worth saying, hey, person who's leading the music, what will be the songs this week? I want to practice them at home or well, whatever. This is where it can be useful to have a core 50, 100 songs that are like staples. Yeah. And everybody knows them because they're the ones you sing. Reg- We're getting off topic, but... No, it's great. It's part of but it. having... Yeah, having that core. Because yeah. like, you know, Christian hymns is what? A thousand? Eight hundred? Yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hymns. There's yeah. no way you're going to learn all of them. No. So just have some and then yeah. everybody knows them. Yeah. And then you can add new stuff, but at mm-hmm. least you've got that core where everybody's like, I can do this with my eyes closed. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. So... Interesting convo, but I did want to talk about that. So I'm glad we got to kind of flesh out some of those ideas. So in Gatsby's hymnal, while it only contained 157 of his hymns, he wrote nearly 700 hymns over his lifetime. I was surprised to realize that I've actually sung a few of his hymns before, um, thanks to them being retuned by Indelible Grace. So we've actually sung... Um, Mercy Speaks by Jesus Blood, originally called The Blood of Sprinkling, and The Love of Christ is Rich and Free, the latter of which I will have Kara read the lyrics to now. The love of Christ is rich and free, fixed on his own eternally. Nor earth nor hell can it remove, long as he lives, his own he'll love. His loving heart engaged to be their everlasting surety, "'Twas love that took their cause in hand, and love maintains it to the end. "'Love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law, "'can turn the surety's heart away, he'll love his own to endless day. "'Love has redeemed his sheep with blood, and love will bring them safe to God. "'Love calls them all from death to life, and love will finish all their strife.' He loves through every changing scene, nor aught can him from Zion wean. Not all the wanderings of her heart can make his love from her depart. At death beyond the grave he'll love, in endless bliss his own shall prove. The blazing glory of that love which never could from them remove. Quite a beautiful song for a man who was basically illiterate. Um, Yeah, I mean, he may be an illiterate, but he had a way with words. I mean... I was joking earlier, but not joking about him being illiterate for the time. But then in our in our day and age, he would be perfectly fine because, you know, the standards for education have slipped 
dramatically, but um, it also just shows the the heart of God and how it comes through mm-hmm. um, in the life of of believers. So it's an excellent song. It's a great recording by Sandra McCracken, um, who we've had on the show before. It really speaks to the love that Jesus has for us and how secure we are in that love. Um, my husband was talking about the song earlier and, and how it's really the, the perseverance of the saints. And you think about that doctrine being so important to someone like yeah. Gatsby and then having a song like this, where it's just through and through the whole the whole hymn um, and how important it is to sing those truths. Uh, I love, yeah. sorry, I was just going to say, I really love the line. I loved it when I first listened to it. Um, but again, when I was reading it, I was thinking about it. The line in verse five that says, not all the wanderings of her heart can make his love from her depart. Mm. It's like, that's good. Yep. Good. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing too, when you think about, um, well, I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too deep. I'll just get a little deep. When you think about how, uh, the church is the bride of Christ and, um, the, the tenderness and the gentleness and the and the love that Christ has for his bride and and the security that we have as his bride and and then you have a line like this like not all the wanderings of her heart can make his love from her depart you mm-hmm. think well you know we we get you know some of these hymn writers today get a lot of uh, a lot of flack for writing like gushy mushy kind of like you know romantic lyrics but it's true in that yeah. that Christ gave us that picture of marriage to speak about his love and his relationship to the church and that that beauty that um that is represented in that picture can come out from uh, a poor a poor man in Manchester you know like oh yeah like this is this is how Christ loves us so really beautiful like poetic language here yeah. and um I really encourage you to listen to it uh, if you haven't heard that hymn already. I, I want to end it off with just a verse of encouragement. I don't think the world expected much from William Gadsby, uh, but he had this huge impact on the church by yeah. God's grace. He was a dedicated preacher and teacher and had a huge vision for planting churches and preaching throughout the land. He was able to use his his few talents to bless us for many generations. Yep. And that should be an encouragement to us that we are ordinary women or men, if you're listening, that God can use mightily if he so chooses. And we find these encouragements in verses like 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, if you don't mind reading it. Yep. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A. 
Amen. So yep. may we be weak and foolish to the glory of God. Amen. <laughs> we are a weak and foolish church. That's right. Amen. <laughs> and that is that is nothing to be ashamed of. No. Nope. But yeah. So thanks for sharing that with us. Like I kind of knew that Gatsby's hymn existed. I didn't know who he was mm-hmm. or anything about the hymnal. So that was really interesting. Um, again, that hymn that we just read, definitely worth looking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and worth looking up his hymnal um, and reading through some of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Monet. And guys, we'll see you next week for another episode. But until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Bye. Bye.